Hi listeners, this is Valentine Kennedy. You might recognize my voice from episode 103 with Cody Rose Clevidence or episode 106 with S. Yarbury. I'm so excited to share this conversation with poet and teaching artist Gabrielle Octavia Rucker, a writer and editor from the Great Lakes currently living on the Gulf Coast. Gabrielle's debut poetry collection, Dereliction, is currently available from The Song Cave. I first read Gabrielle's work in The Poetry Project's annually published online literary magazine, The Recluse. The poem of hers that struck me then, and when I read it again in her debut collection, was Practice for My Birthday. This poem reflects on the speaker's childhood and eventual coming of age, and on the resulting tensions between a greater understanding of the world and confusion about one's place within it, a recurring theme throughout the collection. I was delighted when Gabrielle agreed to record a conversation with me for Commonplace. I knew I wanted to talk to Gabrielle about her background after reading in her bio that she calls herself a self-taught artist, which is something I never see. I wanted to talk about what it means to devote one's time to writing as the sole driver of one's own learning. Gabrielle and I talked about this and what she learned from working odd jobs and then working for herself, Gnostic gospels, memes, the role of poetry in society, the end of capitalism, reanimating dodos, the politics of representation, and what it means to sell writing. We also mention acemic writing, a creative practice at the intersection of writing and visual arts. Acemic writing looks like text and is written like text, but doesn't have content and can't be read. Gabrielle talks briefly about her own acemic writing practice and also uses acemic writing as a metaphor to talk about her spiritual practice. This idea of practice itself being somehow inherently acemic whether it's visual or textual or spiritual practice, is to me a central idea of Gabrielle's long poem, Murmurs, which opens dereliction. You'll hear an excerpt of this poem about halfway through our conversation. Listeners can find more of Gabrielle's work through her ARENA channel, where she compiles much of the research for her creative work and the classes she teaches. In honor of this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner will donate $250 to Keep Eyes on Sudan, selected by Gabrielle. Keep Eyes on Sudan is an organization run by members of the Sudanese diaspora to amplify the calls of the Sudanese people for sovereignty and support. For this episode, Commonplace patrons will get access to a list of some of Gabrielle's favorite things right now that includes music, literary magazines, a cooking blog, and more with Gabrielle's commentary. Some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive one of the following books, courtesy of The Song Cave, Kelsey Street Press, and the University of Pittsburgh Press. Gabrielle Rucker's Dereliction, Meta Sama's Swing at Your Own Risk, and Ed Roberson's When Thy King is a Boy. If you love Commonplace, please consider becoming a patron. We're an independent podcast with no institutional affiliations, no ads, and always operating at a loss. But listeners like you can help defray the costs of production by pledging monthly donations through our Patreon. 
Patrons also get access to exclusive content related to each episode, and patrons who pledge $10 or more a month are also automatically enrolled in our Commonplace Book Club. Lastly, I want to mention that we're currently working on Rachel's third Bagley Wright lecture episode on the ethical guidelines that we set for ourselves when we write. In the latter half of my conversation with Gabrielle, we end up talking a lot about ethics and poetry. It's a topic that's always on our mind at Commonplace. Rachel would love to know your thoughts on this subject. Do you have taboo topics? Things, people, or stories that you'd never write about? In what ways can a poem be unethical? Do you have any ethical writing guidelines that you try to follow? If so, what are they? Send us your answers as an audio message or voice memo via email to rachel at commonpodcast.com or leave us a message using SpeakPipe at the bottom of the Commonplace website landing page. I'm Valentine Connerty. This is Gabrielle Octavia Rucker. Hi. We are in Rachel Zucker's apartment. Um, sort of to set the scene, things have been a bit chaotic as we've tried <laughs> to get in. Uh, yeah. The lock was not working, and then like, just you know, <laughs> one Other thing after key another. Issues. Yeah, but um, the nice thing about that is that we've already been talking for like 20 minutes yeah and so there's already some like you know rapport the dynamic the dynamics already been settled kind of um which is kind of nice yeah so um i think i wanted to start with um just you know the basic interview question like tell me about your background like mm. where i know um in your bio you refer to yourself as a self-taught artist yeah. which um is really cool and also kind of a vanishingly rare thing in the field of poetry extremely um, <laughs> so i'd love to hear about your background and how you came to be this self-taught artist yeah um so self-taught at least in my case means i don't have any uh level of higher education like i don't have a college degree i don't have an mfa um, and that used to be actually like really shameful for me. I used to hate that. I remember being um, in my early 20s and like friends of mine were graduating and I was getting invited to all these graduation dinners and I was actually really jealous because I had just been working. Like I didn't have any, uh, and no one throws you a party for working, you know, for <laughs> like having a job. Um, but in all that time while my friends were at college and I was living in Chicago. I went to, I did go to college for one year. I'll say that, but like, what do you do your first year of college? You don't do anything. Um, I was reading a lot cause I've always read a lot. Um, I've always really loved poetry since I was like young. Um, 
And I found that I found two things that one, when you are the age of a college student or look around the age of a college student, you can just walk into colleges and use their libraries and read books and use their computers and just ask someone like, hey, can I use your stuff to log on? And someone's going to let you log on. Um, so I kind of would like use the resources around me and I would go to my old like college. I would go to friends schools and just kind of like sit. I don't remember if I ever sat in on classes. I don't think I did, but I considered it. Um, but more or less I was just reading. I was reading a lot. And I think because I felt so ashamed or down about like where I was in life or like that I wasn't in school I kind of like disassociated through reading books. Um, you know, I in school, when you have to go to school, you have to read the books they assign. Like, you know, you get your syllabus. They tell you what you're going to read about. They tell you what you're going to do. Um, and I didn't have to do that. Like if I picked up a book and I didn't like it, I put it down. Um, so I had a, a really expansive like field that I could do anything in. And the only person creating those parameters was me. And I tend to be a pretty motivated person, even if that doesn't look like motivation to myself. I think at the time, if you went back and talked to like Gabrielle back then, I wouldn't be like, I'm a motivated individual necessarily. Um, but in hindsight, I didn't, I had nothing else to do. <laughs> I had nothing else to do. So I worked and I read and I went home and I, yeah, that's it. I love what you said about your motivation not always looking like motivation mm. to yourself. Can you, what, what does that mean? I'm really hard on myself. Okay. That's like, the, it boils down to that. I'm really not the kindest person to myself, especially when it comes to my passions. Like I take myself extremely seriously. Mm -hmm. I think I take everything pretty seriously. People close to me, I, I think would say like Gabrielle's pretty, Serious, pretty critical. I, I think I'm nice and kind and loving too. I, those things can exist together, but I, I'm not always, I think I could be doing more. I mm -hmm. always think I could be doing more. And that's, you know, for whatever various reasons in childhood are just external things, but, um, I could be nicer to me. And as I've gotten older, I think I have become nicer to me. I think I've become especially nicer to like younger versions of myself because it's like, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, like to live alone when you're 17, 18 in a city that you didn't grow up in and you're just figuring out stuff like you have to have a lot of stamina to do that. You have to like really be determined um, or you have to have no other options. And I, it was kind of both for me. Um, so I think. I didn't know what I was doing. I just was on autopilot. Mm -hmm. So if you would have asked me back then, I would have thought that motive. If I would have thought that motivation meant, oh, I'm going to school. Um, which also, while I was talking, I remembered something else about what self-taught means to me. When I was in Chicago, because all this was happening in Chicago, um, I started at some point going to open mics and like mm -hmm. poetry readings and like DIY poetry spaces, and I think that's where. I learned how to read poetry and I learned how poetry like sounds and I learned ways of like using your voice in poetry and that like you should 
probably be reading aloud as you write, or at least while you're editing. And I don't think that I could have learned that in school also. Like maybe, I mean, I don't know what you learned in school, so maybe I could have, but, um, I really, I went to those a lot. Like that was my nightlife was going to like poetry readings. And I don't feel like those type of poetry readings happen so much anymore. Like they were situations just like you go, you mingle around for a while. It's BYOB or you can buy like beers or whatever there. There's like a little open mic you can sign up for. There was maybe like one or two like headlining poets, headline with quotations, who are just friends of friends, like who maybe came out with a book. They read. Then it's a party after that. Maybe someone made soup. Like <laughs> I was at that type of stuff. So that felt like um, also a really foundational and like educational party space that I entered. Mm-hmm. I miss those so much. It's, it's so... Um... It's so funny you mentioned, like, I don't know what you did in school. And (laughs) one of the reasons that I'm so excited to talk to you about this is because I I did go to undergrad, Mm -hmm. but um, I didn't study writing in undergrad. I, my major was gender studies and I like tinkered with poetry on the side and um, then just sort of have ended up in literary spaces Mm -hmm. Uh, because of an internship I had and then it turned into a job and then I just sort of tumbled further and further into this little world. Um, but I also have had, um, like the sort of shame around not having an MFA and not being in, not being like traditionally educated Mm -hmm. in literature. Um, um, so you've lived in Chicago, mm-hmm. you've lived in New York City, mm-hmm. now you're in New Orleans. I am. Um, what, you, so you've been working this entire time, what sort of jobs <laughs> were you in? How did like the cities and the jobs that you were doing and like the people you're around kind of shape your trajectory as an artist? Oh, what a great question. I never get to reflect on my jobs that I've had. So I'm originally from Detroit. I want to say that. I say that because people don't know where Southfield, Michigan is from. I'm technically from Southfield, Michigan. Mm -hmm. That's where I was born and raised. Um, I have a lot of love for Metro Detroit, um, even though I will never likely live there ever again. Um, But I moved to Chicago when I was 17. And the first job I got, because I, like I said, I went to college for one year at Roosevelt University. Um, and Roosevelt University has attached to it the Auditorium Theater, which is, I think, like a historic landmark in Chicago. It's where, like, the Joffrey Ballet does their winter programming all the time, like, for the Nutcracker. Alvin Ailey, like, does a lot of stuff there. Various musical artists come, whatever. I got a job there as an usher. That job was, like, weird, um for many reasons i had to wear a vest and a bow tie um the people that ran it like (laughs) i mean well not the people that ran it but the other ushers like the lead ushers were really cool like one of them i remember who had been working there for a while like gave me like i think the first edible i ever had was like one of them gave me that he like made them himself and they were actually really good there's an older couple that met there like they were both ushers and I think they were just like you know elderly people that wanted to have a job to get out the house but they ended up getting married very sweet kind of all my jobs have been like sitcoms um I also ended up working as a ranch hand it wasn't on a ranch it was at an innovation space like wait what does that mean exactly right what does that mean it was called I'd like 
do I want to name all the my jobs that I've had? But it wasn't a ranch. It was like literally like this really colorful innovation space where like brands would come do like off-site bullshit. Um, and my job title was ranch hand, which was technically a glorified janitor. And I was the only one that was saying we're janitors, y'all. We're not ranch hands. Um, and I moved furniture there. I had to move old vintage furniture. So a bunch of different rooms. And I worked at the Chris Kindle market sometimes. Oh. The Christmas market there. Yeah. <laughs> that was very sitcom I had a crush on the person that worked at the wooden toy booth next door. I was selling tea. I had my birthday there, and everyone was giving me little boots of mulled wine. Very mm-hmm. cute. Um, I'm sure I did other things while I was there. I can't remember. When I got to New York, I worked at Paper Source. I wouldn't recommend ever working at Paper Source. It was chill. The people were chill, but you can only work like a total of four hours a day. And I was like... I'm trying to make money, babe. Yeah. Um, then I got a job at probably my favorite job ever. I worked at Le Palais de Thé, which was a French tea boutique in the Upper West Side. I really, really liked that. And they gave me good health insurance because they were French. Um, but all these jobs, I, now I work for myself. I also worked, oh, I didn't talk about these. Uh, I worked in New York. Um, I worked at the National Book Foundation for a while as the admin there. I worked at the International Center of Photography. But then I got furloughed because of COVID Mm -hmm. from the International Center of Photography. Um, And, you know, sometimes I was doing programming stuff while I was in New York. I was, like, running a little, like, um, community podcast. I was doing different things. Now I work for myself. I work as a teaching artist. Um... I teach classes at, I've done Poetry Project, the School of Poetic Computation, which is based here in New York. Also the Warman School, which is run by poet L.A. Warman. Um, And I started doing some stuff myself for my sometime school, which I start calling the Seminary of Ecstatic Poetics. And yeah, I'm just now, I have a lot of space. I've worked a lot. Most of my life has been working. As a kid, I worked in a plant, like a plastics plant. Um, cause my dad owned a very small plastics plant and thought it'd be nice to have his kids work in it during the summer sometime. So I worked weird things. I will say m- all of these jobs, aside from the ones that I do now, like the teaching artist stuff, um, are rooted in like abuse and power. Like they were like all of them. Um, and I think that's really important because like, yeah, I was just like, working and it sounds like oh you're just living your life you're working you're doing it these a lot of these jobs i was like abused like emotionally abused at um on top of like just my time being like siphoned for shit that didn't matter i think that that's why i'm really big about like working for myself now i spent a lot of time giving my time and my energy my power because i didn't have a choice then um to people who we're haters, low-key, like, big haters. Maybe high-key. High-key. Yeah. I mean, some were high-key, big-ass haters. I yeah. don't want to, like, harp on all the things I've heard through work, but it was kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, I have also had uh, my share of horror stories of exploitation, um, specifically in the literary nonprofit industrial complex. Yeah. <laughs> We don't need to talk about that. Um, but 
maybe we can read something yeah. sort of get back into the into the book um i was thinking maybe we could start with of the lucky you are chosen yeah i love that poem cool yeah. okay of the lucky you are chosen out the window of a speeding Oldsmobile, a young girl's reflection dances on a prism of flyby crops. What she doesn't know, she doesn't know. Suffering, happily, drinking her red pop, pondering the merging of all possible reality, the lifespan of rocks. Geologically speaking, she knows all life is lava-born. All chaos and structure naturally formed through fire and pressure, simple ingredients of fate and bacteria cycled through eons of gradually polluted atmosphere. Embryonically, her consciousness remains seafaring, unforgivably young. She revisions herself, a 10 million year old reptile creeping the shoreline, a bog buried sacrifice excavated, her skull full of mud and bile, three petrified baby teeth fused to the jaw. It was a quick death, she remembers, a long life wandering. She knows what she knows, a child of the universe, suffering happily, watching her reflection, cautiously considering the scene before her, a long road stretched thin towards a violent horizon. I also love that poem. <laughs> um, so one of the reasons I wanted to start with that poem is so much of your collection is sort of, or at least one of the themes that I sort of saw through the collection is the sort of cusp between like childhood and consciousness mm -hmm. and um, becoming aware of yourself and other people. And the kind of inward, outward looking that that mm. requires and sort of instantiates. I think I had to write this book to stop being a child. Not that like one stops being a child, mm -hmm. but at least to move beyond whatever I'd been processing since I was a child. And I think that for me, how I experienced my own childhood was really observational. Like I, my mom would describe us as like shy, like me and my sister, like, oh, you all didn't like to like hang out with other kids or whatever. Um, or when we did, it was fine. But like when we first had to, it was like we kind of had to watch the room or I especially had to watch the room. Um, and I think that as a kid, I mean, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to integrate a lot of new information into your life and a lot of that information is disarming like it might not you might not feel it as a kid but when you're at least i think back on it like i think about how much violence i witnessed passively and like actively i think there was like violence occurring in my home i don't think like in my early early childhood it was like huge and it i don't it's hard to say like I think sometimes it was directed at me, but I think that like, I understand what life is now. And I understand that my parents were children and that they were treated, you know, in a certain way that then extends to me. So it's not really, a, you know, I'm not saying any of this to blame them, but I, you get, 
talked to a certain way as a kid. You know, you get treated a certain way as a kid and that's a lineage of harm a lot of the time. And as a kid, I didn't know it was harm. It's just like people are talking to you. Like you're learning interpersonal relationships. And then more passively, like you think about all the violence that people witness through TV, through observing other people, even in grocery stores. Like if you see people arguing in a grocery store, you, you see people like talking to their own kids or talking to like, you, you see violence in a lot of different ways. In movies and TV, I think, like, give you the extremes of what violence can look like. Or at least if you're fortunate enough to not live in a home where, like, extremes of violence are happening, you likely see that on TV, you know? Um, but I also learned about violence. This is still through media and TV, like, by watching Animal Planet. Mm -hmm. I really liked Animal Planet, and I really loved the History Channel. And those are full of violence, you know? And so I started to... I mean, I don't, I'm saying this now, I don't really know what like, you know, seven, six-year-old Gabrielle truly like understood, but I guess I'm her most reliable source. But like, you know, I started to understand that violence was like not just something humans did. And it was a lot bigger than like human interaction, that it was like a theme of life and that death was a theme and that life was a theme and that suffering was a theme. Um, as uncomfortable as it made me. And I understood that violence could be a sport and that some people and some creatures are better at, you know, conveying or operating in violence than others are. Um, and in thinking of it like that, I guess I, I don't know what I understood about it. Consciousness though, the way I think of, I mean, I don't know. Consciousness is weird. And I had a very illuminating talk with a friend of mine last night that has me kind of like scrambled in the brain about what I think life really is. But I had a lot of weird things occur to me as a kid that like are unexplainable. I had a lot of weird dreams. Like I can remember the first dream that I like actively remember in like where the where like the dictionary or like the journal of like my dream world begins was in the sixth grade. And that was a dream where I was like crying. I was in like naked and crying on a rock, a huge rock in the middle of the ocean. And it was raining. The water was super choppy and gray. The sky was gray. There was nothing around, like no boats, no land, no anything, just the sea. And in the distance, there was a giant standing in the sea and the sea came up to his torso. So like think about how tall that like being had to be. And I was just wailing. And I had that dream in the sixth grade and I woke up and I've never forgotten it. You know, like, I, I don't know what that means, if it means anything, but like my dream life has been very rich and I think that there are some like unexplainable events that have occurred um, to me. Some that my sister like has also been witness to in one way or another. So I don't know. I just think that as a child, I didn't, question what was happening to me as much. I just witnessed and was like, well, that happened to me. Now when you get older, people want to make sense of what happened to them and why it mattered and why it didn't. And that's healthy. It's good. Sometimes you have to do that depending on what happened. Um, but I kind of miss, I kind of miss just being like, I don't know, how do I integrate this now into like my reality? Like I, I have information. I'm new here. 
all I can do is integrate this into like my truth. Um, so I try to do that. And I guess a lot of this book is like trying to like, trying to notate my truth somehow, like my young truth or like my worldview, however like odd and like nonsensical it might be sometimes. I hope that made sense. That did make <laughs> sense. I have a lot of things buzzing in my head right now, but um, another book I've been reading that a lot of what you've just said reminded me of is um, Joseph Campbell's Pathways to Bliss. Like mm-hmm. I think the subtitle is Mythology and Personal Growth or something. Ooh. It's really good. I love mythology. Um, but a lot of what he talks about is like myths as these sort of symbolic guides um, like, like you were talking about, like violence is a theme of life mm-hmm. and suffering is a theme of life. Um, and he also talks extensively about like, um, and it's like comparative mythology. So he's talking about like uh, people's beliefs all over the world mm-hmm. and like the themes of childhood and the theme of like having to face a certain kind of awareness of life being entangled with death Mm. and life being an inherently violent sort of consumptive thing. Um, And like how you deal with that sort of determines your entire worldview. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But I, but I think you like kind of what you were saying, like you, you have done that in the book in that, like a lot of the truths that you're able to, access are like you kind of do it through symbol and mm-hmm. through it's not exactly asemic writing but like you mention asemic writing in yeah. murmurs and like the kind of um the image as text if that makes sense yeah, it does i have an asemic writing practice i'll show you some stuff from it um and I used to do that all the time. Like, I'd just be doodling. And I remember in class once, like, years ago. I think this is, like, a weird class that I had that one year I was in college. Someone sitting next to me was like, what language is that? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't know. But, yeah, I think that the way I write and the way that I see, the way that I, my process is very visual in that, like, I'm seeing everything. Like, everything that happens in this book, like, I saw it wasn't just like I'm looking for the right word. I like want to put this here. I think sometimes I, I editing is like almost like it's like set design, kind of where like I see the image, I write it. Sometimes I don't understand why I'm seeing what I'm seeing. Some of the images are like an amalgamation of like things that really happened in life. Like my mom had a blue Oldsmobile. You know, like that was the first car that I ever was in as a child. Um, But that doesn't mean that, like, obviously that poem, like, stretches beyond the experience of just simply riding in a car and gets, like, way bigger of, like, you know, something else is happening, which is crazy to think, like, if you're, if you're a parent and you have a kid, (laughs) your kid's in the back of your car, like, they might be, like, dealing with shit like this, and you're just like, they're just loving, they're in the ride. Um, But yeah, like, sometimes it's amalgamation of real life images that have happened to me. And then there's other things that come up and show themselves and reveal themselves. And I incorporate them because they want to be together for some reason. Like they want to be in conversation. And I see all that. 
And then when I go to edit, I kind of can choose, uh, like, what if there was a sunflower here? What if I put a fennel bulb here? Mm -hmm. You know, like, maybe I just made something. Maybe I ate fennel that, like, two days ago, and I'm still thinking about it. I'm going to throw a fennel bulb in there, you know? But the the sentiments and the feelings and, like, the, the gesture of the image is facilitated by the text and like they have to go hand in hand i almost wanted to tell people at a reading yesterday that i think would have worked better if people had closed their eyes but unfortunately it was like a reading where like i'm working with like a moving image artist so like you kind of have to watch the person's image it'd be shitty of me to be like close your eyes mm -hmm. while this video plays um but yeah sometimes i think it's just about seeing whatever's there I don't know. So I don't know how online you are, but have you ever Vaguely. seen the like the meme that was like something to the effect of a million years ago, a fish crawled out of the water <laughs> yeah. and now I have to pay taxes yeah. or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> this poem is like a child experiencing that firsthand yeah. for me but in like such a poignant and like dead serious way. Oh my God. It, it is actually yeah, snowing. I'm like really geeked. <laughs> yeah. Really no, this is really cool. <laughs> this is really sweet to me. Um, yeah, it is like that meme. I've seen that meme. Um, there's another meme that, um, I'm actually going to send you. I'll find it. That's like, um, what does it say? It's like a woman sitting in a chair and behind her, like there's a, there's like a bird like screaming and going crazy. It's like some sort of crane or ibis. And on the woman sitting down, it's like my fourth grade teacher. And then on the bird screaming, it's like the fourth grade girl in the back who's summoning like spirits like via the old chants or something. Like it's just like that meme feels similar to mine, like to the other one where it's like these. I'm really interested in ancient life. What mm -hmm. life was before we had this weird, stupid, Western, violent, like, you know, European globalized society. Like, and I'm speaking from a Western point of view. I am in America and I grew up in America. I get that America is a country. It is not the world. But America has had a, and, you know, Western domination has had a huge effect on the world as a whole. And... I'm really unhappy about that because I'm always trying to figure out, like, what would my life really be like? Like, what is the purpose of my life? I don't think most people can find the purpose of their life when, like, there's a toll on the road that you got to fucking cross to go see your grandma or something, you know, or, like, your wages are going to get garnished because, unfortunately, uh, there's a recession that no one's admitting to and eggs cost whatever amount of money like six bucks right now yeah so you know like i'm really i think a lot of this book was like have it like the daily coming to terms with like the fact that i'm we're suffering in like a snow globe of like <laughs> yeah snow globe. there's like fake shit going on um and that we've like built whole societies off of and i think as a child you I think I don't, I don't know if I realize that. I don't, I won't give myself enough credit that I was like six and I'm like, this is all a facade. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that children are more connected to true life 
like the essence of life, what life means. Um, and I think that, you know, when children are born into the world that we're in, that can be really strange. I think we let children say what they want to say, which is great, more or less. Hopefully we do. And like, they get to babble. They get to say shit that doesn't make sense. They will talk about people being dead that they saw. And everyone's just like, okay. Like they have these experiences that don't actually align with like the life that we live as adults. And we tolerate that up until a certain point, up until like really probably the third grade, I would say. Once you're around like seven, it's like, okay, babe, like, come on. Like you're make believing maybe a little too hard now. Like go do your homework, go learn long division. And that's such a hateful yeah, way of crushing a child's spirit. Yeah. And even more than being hateful, like it's hateful and it's, it's nuanced. You know, it's under this guise of like, you'll live a better life if you do this. Like, that's not true necessarily. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm living a better life than maybe I would have been if I was left to my own, like, if I had just been allowed to just like be and do things and like gravitate towards my own interests. Um, And, you know, that's for numerous reasons. I'm a black person. My father's black my mom's mexican like those people you know they have a whole different relationship to survival than other people do so it's like yeah they're gonna want you to like talk a certain way dress a certain way get your shit done get good grades because to them that is survival and i have never thought that that was true like you know there's that like lie that you have a permanent record in school and they tell people that and i was like no the fuck i don't i was like no i don't (laughs) are you serious? Permanent record. Like, whatever. Like, that's not real. And it's not. It's not real. (laughs) Like, no one's... Surveillance sometimes... Surveillance happens really early. I guess I'll say that. And the the fear of surveillance happens really early. Um, And I think that ancient life, there wasn't surveillance. There was, like, you know, you couldn't be surveilled in that way. And I think that that's the main difference when surveillance comes into play and not a society can exist without surveillance. If there is surveillance, a society that's not a society, it's a prison Mm -hmm. point blank. Yeah. Have you, have you read the poet, uh, Cody Rose Clevidence? No, but I know Cody's also published by the song cave and I listened to y'all's conversation. (laughs) Okay. No. So that cool. That's awesome. But, um, just what you're talking about, about ancient life is so in line with like the conversation that I was having with Cody about like reading texts that are like so diff like far from us in like time and space and how, you know, it it sort of collapses this idea that we're in the best time that there's ever Mm -hmm. been. And that like, you know, there's like that other meme that's like, what, 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 uh, I was born in the wrong time. And then like basically any time mm, that yeah. you say is like open for like massive criticism. Yeah. But really like when you think about it, is this the best time that we could possibly be born in? And I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced either. I think I would be way happier to like spend, I mean, it's hard to say. I think that my spirit would be content with like, I'm going to the river with all my girlfriends to wash the clothes 
and we use the natural spring water and we, that we can drink together and we bathe and I don't think about, you know, I think about my tasks. Um, I think I would be content with that and not even from like a gendered perspective, just like simply like, yeah, I'm doing my little tasks and I'm happy. Um, but also, you know, like I love going to the dentist. I love getting a little Dunkin' uh, coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, I it's hard. The time's fake. Like that's the thing. Like time is like, you know, like yeah. There's huge parts of me that would survive and do well and thrive in a timeline that is not this one. And there's parts of me that find great comfort mm-hmm. in this timeline. And I understand both of those. Um, but and it fluctuates on a day to day basis about like how I'm feeling about like the timeline that I'm living in. Um, but you're right when you say like reading older work, there's a distance, like the distance of time you have between those things really, I think people need to be reading old stuff. Um, when I was younger, I, I was lucky enough not to be raised very religiously. Like uh, my parents are, I mean, my mom's pretty Christian. Um, but I think that's like, (laughs) No shade, mom, but I think that's like a situation where it's like um, you need to find comfort for things that you did in your life and rather than like necessarily take accountability, which she kind of is now, um, you first run to the church. Mm-hmm. That's fine. People have to do that. Um, my dad, though, is a very big, I don't think he thinks anything happens after you die. He's just like, there's nothing here. Um, and so I kind of like had a distance from church, but I read... I read Genesis and I read Revelations. <laughs> I said, I think everything else in between here is kind of like, okay, I'll figure that out by living. But I think I need to know about the beginning, allegedly, and the end, allegedly. Um, which is interesting. It's I think it's fun just to read those two. I also, like I said, I love Animal Planet. I love History Channel. I love mythology. Um, I wish that we had more literature on, or at least literature that's accessible to me as an English speaker. Um, but maybe that's for better that it's not, um, just on different cultures and like the, the cosmologies of various cultures. Um, I find that a lot of like Christianity doesn't resonate for me just as a cosmology, um, or at least Christianity as exists now. I watch a lot of Gnostic lectures before I go to bed. (laughs) Um, they like the great courses has like a Gnostic course you can watch taught by David Brackey, who I think teaches out of like Ohio state university or whatever. And I, it's so crazy to me, like so much of like Gnostic, like the history of early Christianity is pagan and is like heretical and is also like rooted in some really weird shit that like, if you showed a modern day Christian, they'd be like, they'd be like heresy. Like, the demonic which is like how we got the christianity we have now they just took all the paganism and all of the like you know more complex relationality of humans to god and god to like other deities they took all of that out and so that's why when i realized that i was like there's i knew there was a huge gap in christianity I was like this shit does not hit like this doesn't make sense and then once I started to understand like what the the Gnostic history was with it, I was like, oh yeah, this is just like every other. There's a chorus of people of deities, in people, in women, and men, and like you know, 
non-gendered beings that make up what Christianity really is. And that's true for tons of other cultures. And that being true feels grounding because that means like that's uh, just like violence is a theme. That means all those other things are a theme. I think like spirits are, I think that's a thing. I think that, you know, living in a world where like there's not these binaries because like again surveillance is going to cause binaries to come up good or bad are you operating in the system of good or bad if i'm viewing you is this right or wrong um and i don't think that that is the point of i don't think ancient people were interested in that but they're dead so maybe they were (laughs) like i don't want to speak for all the ghosts i learned about um I'm about to go on a tangent. Um, oh, please. I, so one of the beliefs of like Gnostic, um, like early Christian religion was that, because people had questions, I guess, of like back then, like why would God do violent things? Why would God flood the world? Why would God let everyone die? And Gnostics, believers of like Gnosis, I don't, I mean, also, excuse me, I'm not, like, a historian. Like, I just watch these things and literally go to sleep. Um, but basically, like, people preaching Gnosis would came up with a thing where it's like, oh, the, the God that, like, is spoken about in the Bible and the God that, like, everyone's talking about, that's not actually God. That is, like, a someone, like, basically puppeteering as God, pretending. His name was Yalda Baoth. And Yalda Baoth is not the true God. It's not the true face of Christianity and what God is. It is like a deviation of the wisdom of God. And that deviation of the wisdom of God and the word of God created a universe <laughs> and is like playing with it. You know, like there's this like trickster. I mean, in no, now that I think about it, like in Gnostic religion, like earth is operated by a trickster God, like someone who's just like playing with toys in a like fucked up way. Um, and when I realized that, I was like, that feels better because I have a really difficult relationship with like the idea of like, I have a difficult relationship with the projection that God and or Jesus takes the form of a white man. Like, I'm sorry, I can't, <laughs> you're not going to get me to believe that. And it's not going to happen. Um, people have died. Societies have been ruined for that. I'm not about to think that like, there's a white man in the sky looking down again, surveillance. Um, but when I learned about Yalaba Oath, I was like, that actually tracks that there's like this deviation of wisdom that is, that has, you know, that has these binaries and like operates within them and has the, the creations around them operate within them. I think that that was really interesting. And it makes a lot of sense for like the, the violence that Christianity can have in that modern day Christianity um, has imposed upon the world, more or less. When you think about it that way, and that, like, oh, this actually is just a facade and, like, an ego, like, an ego trip from some, like, deity divorced from its true source, it gets a little easier, I guess, to live or something. The, um, the chapter I just read in Joseph Campbell, he talks about Christianity as, um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something to the effect of like the creator Mm. is 
a female archetype mm. point blank mm-hmm. because that is like you know the i mean there's some gender essentialism here there's mm. sex essentialism i'm trans so i have mm-hmm. to articulate that but like um but the idea that the creator is male is actually a like kind of violent um change Mm -hmm. that leads to a lot of patriarchy Mm -hmm. and that that is actually kind of the root of a lot of these like evil structures but um anyway anyway we're both on a tangent we are on a tangent and i (laughs) love it i love it um um yeah Let's reorient. I'm like, yeah. okay. I will go. I will keep going. <laughs> okay. Um. So let's, why don't you read something else? Yeah. Watch it just lead us back to Gnosis. It, it might. Um. I don't have a specific excerpt in mind, mm-hmm. but would you re- want to read some of Murmurs? Yeah. Do you have like a part I, where you would like to read? I might. I just read from Murmurs for the first time out loud yesterday like to people and did you murmur it no i didn't i wanted them to make it echo like i wanted like Ooh. an echo effect and they couldn't do it and i was like okay that's fine um let's see hmm i'll start here and go until the end um laughter in the crops of war vernal equinox a stage for the sun Good Aries rides down, and air warms sweet as any flower reeked of semen. Every angel moving in song. I get to smiling off it. Trees fat, at times lethal. The knowledge of blood growing grass. Eons of holy metalwork failed by man. The body of philosophy crumbled. Laughter in the month of zip. Shack dragging his shell hot under lightning brunt of bread and tobacco balanced over my shoulder, magma in a black saucer trailing. See how high the plants think, how bone craves to be arrow, how seed begets beadwork, how every chicken was born to be bled. Laughter in the month of first bleeding, nine saplings spun to serve as my shaking tent. Nineteen sweet bells weaved into my hair. Laughter in the basin of wrongdoing. Soon dead these feral pets of offering, and I too soon follow. Laughter guides the spindle spear. Give me back to fire, that the wet stone of each hell might claim me, rid me of any holiness learned, might render me faceless, to the eyes of any entitled under surname or any Ottoman set to devour the land or lay claim over my body and the many who inhabit this vast space. I own nothing in this world, dare I speak of the next and its canyons or the groping waters it feeds running parallel to this life. All this singing set above me commands nothing And like a good stone, I wait and count the footsteps approaching over the hillside. Yeah, that, that's, that was such a great excerpt to choose. Also, 
Um, so I also want, could you read the, um, the epigraphs or not the epigraphs, the, what they are epigraphs for murmurs. Yes. Yeah. I, I started my reading yesterday by reading these. I'm glad you asked. It's important. Um, so the first is from, I don't really know how to say his name. Um, Aimé Cessier. Um, and it's from his essay, Calling the Magician a Few Words for Caribbean Civilization, published in 1944. Um, and it goes, In the current state of things, the only avowed refuge of, of the mythic spirit is poetry. And poetry is an insurrection against society because it is a devotion to abandon or exiled or obliterated myth. Um, and then the second epigraph is from Walker Evans. I It's from, I think, a book. I don't know if it's an essay. It's called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men from 1941. But I originally encountered this in um, the art, uh, artist book called Kin. And the artist is named Lavelle Whitfield, who I love Lavelle's work. Um, and this was in the book for some reason. But it goes, if I could do it, I'd do no writing here at all. It would be photographs. The rest would be fragments of cloth, bits of cotton, lumps of earth, records of speech, pieces of wood and iron, files of odors, plates of food and of excrement. A piece of the body torn out by the roots might be more to the point. As it is, though, I'll do what little little writing I can. Only it will be very little. I'm not capable of it. And if I were, you would not go near it at all. Or if you did, you would hardly bear to live. And that's how Murmur starts. Um, so the question I had about this, but we can just talk in whatever direction mm-hmm. it, it comes to, is kind of already what we've been talking about. Um, and it might lead us back to the Gnostics. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. But um, it seems like in your work you know, devotion to myth Mm. is an important source of, um, energy and power and illumination. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess what my question was is how that intersects with your spiritual life. If you have a spiritual Mm. practice, um, whether you think of writing as a spiritual practice. Mm. I think I'll start by saying how I think of being a poet is not functional. It is not best function in the society we live in now. I tell my partner this all the time where I'm like, if we were in the, not that there's a correct, but for lack of a better word, if we were in the correct timeline of like what life could be, um, I people would be bringing food in a basket to my door and I'd live a little humble life and I, people would be like, Gabrielle, what, you know, what'd you write today? And I'd be like, here y'all go. I'd read it. And people would interpret it however they need to, to make decisions about like life, you know, and, and for that exchange, for the exchange of me just writing and like seeing whatever that I see and, and, and having the dreams that I have and like assembling life, as I experience it in the way that I do and distilling that for others, that would be enough to garner me like a home and respect and survival, basic needs. Um, And that would be an equal exchange. 
Um, I don't think that poets are afforded that. And I don't that, that I don't think that every poet that exists now is operating in a way that they would receive that either. You know, I think that like anything, poetry has succumbed to late stage capitalism. And while I'd like to live, I don't, you know, I know I have to make money to live. I, I don't think that like poetry is inherently like lucrative. And I don't think that it's something that people do to make money um, naturally. I think that its purpose is almost like what a weatherman's is, but like for more like emotional and spiritual type of weather. So I see writing as like a barometer of that in a way, or at least the writing that I do. My own spiritual practice is, um, again, asemic at best in that I was, like I said, I, I didn't grow up in a firm religion. I didn't go to church every weekend or every day or whatever. I don't know hymns and shit. Like, I don't know that. Um, and maybe it's like that lack of s spiritual stability that like uh, is why I write. Like I'm creating my own. But I also wonder if it is a... I, I just think that... <laughs> my I think about ancestry a lot and like who are the people or the those that like were alive before I was alive what do those memories look like I think I believe in ancestral memories and I I think that it is I can't choose just one thing to believe in and I can't I take what comes to me so anything that comes to me and that feels like reliable and works for me and feels natural and easy um and good and you know works I integrate that into my spiritual practice um and sometimes that looks like an asthemic writing practice like literally like some of that writing I see once once I started thinking about it and I told you how someone was like what language is that I was like what language is it <laughs> we have so many dead languages like how is someone going to tell me that this wasn't potentially like a language before it could become a language in the future. Like language is actually pretty malleable. You can make it up out of anything, which is why I like it. Um, I think that I just take things like I, again, my dream life is really rich. I had a dream recently where I, I it was an initiation, you know, it's like no one can tell me that it wasn't. And so I just take what comes to me. And I accept it and I say, this is true. This is my life. No one knows the totality to which I experience it or live it or anything. Um, I think that the desire, and I, again, I think this is based on me not having like staunch religious beliefs. Um, I think that even in non-traditional, like non-Western religions, there is like a kind of... Um, I'll say specifically within like um, Afro-diasporic like reclaiming of religions um, that there's like you have to follow things by the book. And I'm like, I don't know if you do. Everyone has, I think everyone has the capacity for their own cosmology, you know, however the world came to be for you is how the world came to be. I don't know how, we don't know how vast existence truly is. So I don't like to be narrow about like what I can and can't do um, or what I shouldn't and shouldn't do. Like in what I do today to feel spiritually grounded might not be what I do as a 90 something year old person. Should I live that long? You know? Um, and that 
is for many reasons. I think you have to work with what you have. And the first thing you have is yourself. <laughs> it's the first thing you have. Even if you go to a place and there's different plants, different flora, different people, different birds, um, you have to trust that you're going to understand those signs and things yourself. Um, but I, also, I love mythology. I loved Greek and Roman mythology also, like, from a young age. I thought that was sick. And that's also, I read this, I, when I started reading Greek, Greek and, like, Roman mythology, because obviously that's what's, like, most available because, like, white people were writing it. They're like, oh, like, this is so important to us. And so we've lost a lot of writing from other cultures. Um, or, again, I just don't, I can't read them, which is fine. Gatekeep that. Um... When I realized, like, these are stories. How come no, like, these used to be gods. You know, like, people believed this. People went to temples and, like, made offerings. And now no one does. And everyone sees this, like, oh, silly historical beliefs of early peoples. The Bible's the same thing. <laughs> like, you're telling me that, like, the Odyssey and... The Odyssey and the Bible are the same type of thing. More or less. It's just not centered on, like, one man. It's just, like, a bunch of random men. Um, in the Bible. So I like myth because myth is storytelling. It is literally just fiction <laughs> and I love fiction. So I love myth. Like I'd have to. And I think that maybe that's why I don't, um, I haven't been reading a lot of contemporary fiction lately. And I think it's because like it gets away from myth. It tries to be really mundane. It's trying to relate to everyone's like day to day life. And it's like, babe, I have a day to day life. I have one. I don't need to like take in someone like a fictional day-to-day -day life. I need something larger than that. I need a world and there's not a lot of world building. Um, I do have some books on the back burner that I want to get to eventually um, when I have a reading mind again because right now I'm in a writing mind but yeah we need we need worlds. We don't need like I don't know more people in New York talking about living in New York. <laughs> okay, just live. Yeah. Um, this actually brings up another question that mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, which was, you were talking about um, poetry succumbing to late-stage capitalism, which we all see, we all feel. Um, but I... I think there's this sort of tension in your work, which is probably also a tension in all of our work, um, between timeliness and timelessness. Mm. And I find myself drawn to writing that leans into timelessness. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, sometimes I also really want timeliness, but mm -hmm. I think I feel a lot of timelessness mm -hmm. in your work mm -hmm. and the sense that time is fake. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's this one line in a poem we can read if, if you want, um, that was something to the effect of, I don't want to make room, make more room for modernity. Yeah, I know what, when I said, when I said I thought about that poem, it's like, why, if I, I think it's just something like I can drive to the restaurant while yeah. I write about it. Like, well, we're, we're already <laughs> talking about it. Do you want to read it? Read it's it, yeah. post no bills, I think. It is post no bills. Now, where does it live? Yeah, post no bill. Alone with nothing, unknowable with nothing, another lifetime spent pondering my purpose from out the window of a suburban housing complex. 
My refusal is honest. I do not want to give more room to modernity. I can drive to the restaurant. Why write about it? I have suffered in this terrarium of plastics long enough to say any more would be giving in to obsession. I feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's just, I think it's like, I'm sure people across time have always felt this way. Where it's like, damn, like, yeah, I'm in the present. <laughs> I'm in the present, you know? And I tend to, I think if one is um, inclined towards, like, living in the past or living in the future, um, as I think writers tend to be to some extent, um, or at least the writers I have resonated with, um, then being in the present, sometimes you blink back and you're like, oh, this, oh, Walgreens, yeah, like, oh, Applebee's, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, it's just so it's bad stage design. Like it's, you get like irritated and you're like, ah, okay, this again, I need to go somewhere else. Um, but yeah, timeliness is hard because like, yeah, we're here right now, you know? Um, even us talking about memes, I do love memes. So I'm glad you're bringing memes in the conversation, but that's time. Memes are not timeless. <laughs> uh, memes are timely. Like one day I do like to think though about like what people will think about memes and like, 97 years they'll be like y'all you, you were so mentally ill they're gonna be like the microplastics it li this lines up with how much microplastics you all were consuming mm -hmm. um <laughs> and maybe that is timelessness though you know yeah the anthropocene which is the i'm sure you know but it's the general mm -hmm. name given for the uh human made uh state of extinction that we're in right now due to capitalism in industrialization um that basically it think about a million years in the future um say if there are people alive in a million years on earth this timeline that we live in the anthropocene will have generated enough waste to make its own like layer in the earth's crust like the way geologists date time obviously is through looking at different layers of the earth like oh this mm -hmm. is you'll be able to see what happened based on the waste that we've generated in a million years because of what it's going to chemically like create the way I, I think a lot about geologic time in the book, because I'm thinking about that. Like I'm, I'm also like, as much as I'm sometimes like thousands of millions of years in the past, I'm also that far away in the future. Cause I'm mm -hmm. like, we're not going to be here. Like, this whole house will be under earth one day. Yeah. I or love water. That. Yeah, I love that. I love to think about that. Um, this wasn't the question I was going to ask, <laughs> but do you... Do you hope that humanity survives? Mm. Like, if they do, I hope only... Um, I think survival should only happen if life will get better. If if humanity is not never going to, you know, really come to terms with itself and like the ego of what a human is and like try to be at war with nature forever, which I don't think I will say this like yeah, there's European domination that happened and like, you know, we we all know the history of that. But that is not um I think at this point there's people of all 
races and all backgrounds that keep that structure alive. There's black capitalists, you know, and they're going to do just as much damage as a white capitalist if they get the chance to and they get the money to. That's, that's not, you know, not true. So this is like a human issue. This is like, not just like, oh, if we get rid of white supremacy, then everything's better. No, there's people hell bent on being rich and being in power regardless. And so I, I think that's a theme of what it means to be human though. And so if that's true, I think it's fine if humans go away. Like I don't, it's not sad. Like the point of earth isn't to like feed like humans goals, you know, like there's so many other non-human beings. There's so many non-mammals. There's so many like non-amphibians. There's so many like trees. There's so many mushrooms. Like they can have a go at it for a while without anyone here. And I think that that's totally fine because like there weren't people here for a long time before that. I think it's okay. And I don't think it's nihilistic or pessimistic to be like, no, humans like, you know, if humans die, that's the end of like, we failed. What does it mean to fail as a species? Like, you know, you're here for a blink of time. The world's billions of years old. How mm -hmm. long have we been here? Cut the cameras. <laughs> yeah. Dead ass. Like, it's okay. Do you ever think about like, you know, how far back in time we exist is something that's like, people are learning about it, but also like, at what point in time mm. do we become we? At mm. what point in time are like hominids humans? And at yeah. what point in time do we start going down this path? And, it, it, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot since I read um, this book on the Anthropocene. I can't remember for the life of me what mm -hmm. it's called, but I remember it was by... Simon Lewis and Mark Maslin, two geologists, mm -hmm. and it was, um, it sort of tried to answer that question, like, mm -hmm. how we got here, and, like, look into the future and see, like, okay, these are the possible futures. There's, mm -hmm. like, the future in which, and the book was all about, like, um, looking at the history of humanity as, like, different stages mm -hmm. of energy production and consumption, um, so at some point we either collapse because we're in a positive feedback loop of, um, overconsumption mm -hmm. or we basically automate everything, liberate people mm -hmm. and live off the earth mm -hmm. in terms of not live off the earth, but live with the earth mm -hmm. and like that necessitates totally rethinking labor that necessitates basically just fuck capitalism mm -hmm. and yeah i think what it's hard and this is why i think maybe like the human endeavor is like destined to end i won't say fail just destined to end is that like i mean if you can train a dog you can train a person you know anyone um, we all have our little treats. We all have our little things that we like and that has sedated us and it's made us comfortable and it's like given, given us love. And I, I do think those things are important, but at the end of the day, like 
for capitalism to fall, like everything would have to stop. And Mm -hmm. no one, like your trip to Starbucks couldn't happen. You know, like Mm -hmm. you getting your, I don't know, little, I love chocolate covered peanut butter pretzels. Like, babe, you're not getting those, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and I don't think anyone's actually interested in doing that. Yeah. I think that it's a utopia. And I, I was at a, um, I had a reading this week and there was a little talk afterwards and Jeff Mills, who's like a techno artist from Detroit, legendary techno artist. He was a part of it. And he was taught, he did scoring for the movie Metropolis, which is like a silent film. Yeah. He did the scoring for it. Um, I haven't seen the movie, but he was talking about it and just talking about how like, I think it was made in like the 1920s, maybe a little earlier. And it's about, it's set in the year 2000. So they're really imagining the future, you know? Which is our past. Exactly. I'm like, oh, pre 9-11, they didn't even know. Um, But like Jeff brought up like, you know, like that one, like, does anyone want to really live in a utopia? Like, what does a utopia actually look like? It's an, it's a desire. Like, utopia is not a destination. It's a desire. Mm-hmm. And desires can't always be met. And I think that the struggle for liberation will always exist. Because, again, this is a surveillance state. This is a surveillance planet. You know, it's a surveillance operation. Even cosmologically, <laughs> that there's people ancestors looking down on you that there's white gods trickster gods whatever gods like it's humans are in a relation with surveillance so deeply that i don't know if i don't know if it's ever gonna end and until like literally the species ends and that's just it's just maybe it and i i don't want to say that and sound like hopeless Um, I don't feel hopeless. I do think that like you can change your everyday life and you can change the lives of other people around you and that you care about your neighbors through actionable steps and through like care and thoughtfulness. I'm not like disregarding that and just being like, I'm not on my Schopenhauer like shit, like, Mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know. But I also think that, like, there's a possibility, like, you know, like, um, hmm. The dodo bird is dead. They're bringing it back. I was literally just gonna say, there's other birds, and, like, I'm sure there's, like, variants of dodo birds that actually exist. I'm sure that humans aren't going anywhere. Like, we might in our, how we exist now, but I'm sure that we'll pop back up somewhere down the line and hopefully Mm -hmm. do it better. Yeah. There might be humans on other planets. Like, we don't know about them. Yeah. Who knows what they're doing? Shit. The multiverse. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Or maybe we won't. Yeah, maybe we won't. <laughs> maybe my dad's right. My dad's like, nothing happens. It's done. Yeah. But have you heard about them? Like, I don't know. I didn't I mean know they them. were bringing the dodo bird back. No. Have you heard about, like, whoever these people are, scientists in some country trying to bring back mammoths? Why? I, good question. Mammoths can't survive in... Like, our world when it was pre-warming, let alone, like, (laughs) Like global warming. I think scientists, yeah. I mean, I'm not a scientist. I love the sciences. (laughs) I do think STEM matters, but intention, too. Like, why do you want to bring back a mammoth? Mm -hmm. I mean, the dodo could be cool. We've seen Jurassic Park. Yeah. 
I don't think dodos are going to eat us, but maybe they will. Dodos, I guess they are dinosaurs. Dodos are, you know, I mean, then we get into like issues of, mm, we should let dead things be dead. There's no harm in being dead, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The harm has actually passed. I don't know why you'd want to reanimate anything that has died. Um, Chanel Adams has an essay called The Right to Rest in Peace, which is about like really objects and artifacts within museums and how museums do not allow death. Like museums don't contend with death and do not let things die um, because they perpetually put them on view or they like dislodge um, them from like their place of origin so they don't get like true rest or anything. And in that essay, I was I used it I taught a class called poetry and objects which was my favorite class to teach I really loved that um, but we talked about that where it's like what does it mean to let something die and why would you reanimate something against its will and it makes me think of like again possession like do you, not again have I talked about possession I don't think I have but <laughs> we think that we have ownership over things and people and because they existed on the same plane that we did for a while we shouldn't have any say on if mammoths come back or not. Mm -hmm. um, but here we are. Here some of us are doing it. Um, and But yet we let humans have like a right to recitate or not, you know? Mm -hmm. They didn't sign anything. Um, but that, that extends to like smaller things, objects. Um, that extends also, it makes me think like what happens if you know, a few people do live and you can reanimate like a, a, a culture of people or like a race of people, like not, uh, not to get like, I don't watch zombie things. I don't care about zombie things, but it does make me question like the ethics of like reanimation. Um, cause you know, zombies are all about like the non choice of reanimation, just the reanimation happens. But if mm -hmm. you have the choice, that seems really, um, dangerous ethically and in other ways and it also brings up the question of like if you can create a dodo by mixing with some of the genes of say a pigeon which is i think mm -hmm. what they're trying to do um is that actually a dodo or is that a weird pigeon <laughs> with dodo like traits it's weird because it also is like erasing like the violent history of what happened to dodo birds there's yeah. um a movie i'll send you the name of who made this like short film it's really really short i saw it at some free online like um film festival thing i can't remember anything about it but i'll find it and it is about the dodo and it's about like the history of like how colonizers in you're, uh, Australia, because isn't that where the dodo's from? Australia. No, I don't know. <laughs> uh, they basically were like, this bird is stupid. This bird is easy to catch. This bird is dumb. It's they were just the way they were talking about it was very much in line with how like um, like slave documents and historical like you know data was written about like how they viewed mm -hmm. this other, and the they killed it like uh, the they got rid of the dodo and they just like would kill them to look at them. They would kill them to examine them. They'd kill them to eat. It'd be like, they're not even tasty. These birds don't really mean anything. Like there's literally like 
excerpts in that film of them just being like, this is a useless bird. It's a useless thing. It doesn't even need to be here. They didn't even consider about like what it means to kill it because it was mm-hmm. useless. So in now reanimating, like, oh, we brought it back to life. We saved it. Oh, we, what? Like you, we need to contend with the history that people saw a living creature as completely useless to the point that it could be eradicated from earth. Mm -hmm. That should be more important than like just bringing it back for what reason? So someone can do it again. Yeah. There's this Dorian Lux poem called life is beautiful. That the first line is something like, Life is beautiful and urgent and useful, if only to itself. Mm-hmm. And I think about that all the time. Um, like, I'm a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. I'm not a person that, like, puts that onto other people. But I think that that idea of, like, life being useful to itself mm-hmm. um, is kind of, like, something that I aspire to. Like, both to be useful to myself and also to let other life be useful Mm -hmm. in its own, its own capacity to exist. Yeah. Like the way that it exists, the way that it has evolved, it's there for a reason Mm -hmm. because it's really good at what it does. And death is honorable. Like not that your death will necessarily feel honorable or that like the circumstances of all deaths are honorable, but it is a fact of life. It is a reality, and when things die, you should let them remain dead. Whether you killed it or not, you can't absolve yourself of the violence of killing something because mm-hmm. you now decided, like, you want to, I don't know, reanimate it. Like, go ride an LG. <laughs> go do something. Yeah. Like, go content. Because like, that's really what it is, is like an emotion. There's an emotion happening, mm-hmm. um, and there's a guilt that I don't even yeah. think these scientists would name as guilt. But more than guilt, there's also ambition. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes ambition is a byproduct of guilt and vice versa. Um, but side note, I have a... I play The Sims. I play The Sims 4. Oh my gosh. And I have a okay. Sim who is a vegetarian. I keep forgetting that she's a vegetarian. Her name's Adu, and I keep feeding her shit that she can't eat, and she oh is no. sick. So. Oh no. <laughs> I'm glad your Sim user is feeding you your vegetarian meals. <laughs> Um, we have gone on another tangent. Yeah. So first we have Gnostic <laughs> Gospels. Now we have Dodo Birds. So let's see what else we can do. But, um, so the reason that I wanted you to read Murmurs and the reason that I wanted to include the epigraphs is also connected to you, you talking about poetry and capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if... Is the refusal in um, in post nobels the refusal of modernity, the refusal of like creating more space for this like violent culture? Mm-hmm. Does that also, in some ways, entail a refusal of legibility within a certain kind of literary? field or I guess a more cynical way of saying it would be like within the literary market Mm. I think the literary market is um, how do I think about this I'm not trying to be illegible I'll say that Mm -hmm. I think I am interested in opacity to a certain extent Um, I 
I don't want everyone. I don't. I'm not interested in everyone being like, I got it. Like this is great. Like I don't want to write poems where everyone like is putting it on their like Facebook wall or something. You know, like your your mom. Like I think that's fine to each their own. But I don't really care about that. I think some people do care about that and care about like um, how readable or how well received a poem will be before they write it. I know that that is true because of workshops I've been in. Not workshops I teach, but workshops I've been in in the past where people have literally asked questions like that. Like, how do you know a poem's publishable? That's so bleak. What do you mean? Like, I don't know. It ha- it, It's words on a document or on a piece of paper. It, anything's publishable. Um, so I think that it's the... The desires of writers are a little bit different because there's a you know, micro-celebrity for poetry. There are poets that I'm sure you and I could name who are... It's not really about what they write or how good they are or not, whatever. Um, they exist in a micro-celebrity world where if you ask a random person in the grocery store about a poet, they'll probably, they'll probably give you a few names that you can like guess they're going to give you. Mm-hmm. And that's good for them. They you know, they're probably paid well. They're probably, like, having opportunities that are fun and exciting and good for them. I don't think that that's wrong, but I do think that people aspire to that. And that aspiration is what's extremely dangerous because that aspiration creates less room um, for people that are just writing, you know? Um, Capitalism feeds off of aspiration and ambition. Um, And I think that's even true for me I have a lot of aspirations but it's really I guess about how I go about them and I have a lot of tension for myself and I work through this all the time about like what I'm willing to do and not willing to do to achieve my goals and the boundaries I have around myself of what I won't do because it just doesn't feel good to me but also not imposing those boundaries on others um but I do I guess I'll say it this way. When I was younger and I would go into like the bookstore, I'd go into Borders or something or like a little bookstore, library, whatever. I pick up a book. I look at it. I'm interested. I read a few pages. I like it. If I go to the back, all you see is a picture maybe of the writer and a little thing like so-and-so lives in blah, blah, blah with their dog and three kids. Cool. There was no way to find anything else about that writer. You couldn't get online and follow them. You couldn't, like, you know, they, they didn't have a cult of personality that, like, became larger than the writing. And I think that that is what is happening now. And I think that publishers, I think agents, I think um, big and small. Like, this can be independent or not. You know, it could be, like, big, what do you, big box publishers? I don't know what the fuck you call them. But, like, they want you to have... A following to some extent a lot of the time and that following is it's numbers it tells them how many books you can sell so like you know like you're already you have to prove that you can sell something and so people's aspiration isn't about like how publishable is my poem because I want to write a book it's like how much capital social capital might I gain off this so that I can publish a book you know, like, there's another step involved now mm-hmm. rather than just, like, writing and, like, I'll, maybe this will get published, maybe it won't. I think most people that write know that, like, serious people that are, like, truly, like, I, I do, there's nothing else I want to do. I have no other vocational skill but writing. Know that they might not get published. It might never happen. I was very much 
thinking it, it could never happen but there's other people who don't accept that and don't believe it and will then do whatever they can to write a poem to be um or a book or whatever to be um marketable and i have a lot of qualms about that and you know what this brings me back to the reanimation thing we talked about because they're related in that i'm so sorry if this person is listening but i didn't like your poem um in workshop but there was someone that wrote a poem in a workshop i was in um, and this poem was about, um, it was quote unquote, like honoring the, like several black people who were killed by police violence. And I think it's fine to write poems about that topic, but I do feel like they're reactionary, which is fine. It's fine to write reactionary poetry, but you need to sit with it for a second and think about it. So sharing the workshop, um, and near the end there was a line about Sandra Bland it was something like I know if you were alive right now you would be waking up eating chocolate chip pancakes and going about your day something like that I found that to be so scary because you don't know that person you don't know Sandra Bland she's dead and you've now reanimated her in your poem you've created a scenario where she's making a food that you don't know if she likes if someone, if I died at the hands of police violence and someone wanted to honor me through poetry and they said, I know if Gabrielle were still alive, she'd be up having a like scrambled egg morning. I don't like scrambled eggs. You don't know me. Why did you reanimate this person in this poem this way? Why did you do it? What was the intention? If the intention was to share the poem and get emotion out of people, that's not enough. <laughs> If you wrote that poem because you're feeling something and you're sad and you're hurt, that's fine. Sit with that poem. But you need to think about the moral principle of what it means to reanimate a dead person who was killed and now made into a public spectacle, for better or worse, that you're just assigning them foods and personality traits and likes and dislikes that you don't actually know because you weren't in their life. So many people want to read, and I think, People want to read about violence and they want to read about the pain that they're feeling and the things that they see in the world and the harm that they're like experiencing and like playing witness to, which I get, but they're doing it for two reasons. And I'm not saying this person was doing it because it was marketable. I don't know. I, I think I really think that they were feeling, but I think they should have taken a moment and I brought that up and it became a really big, I think they were offended when I brought it up. Like that, this is not new information. I shared this with them in class, mm -hmm. but it really bothered me and I've seen it happen other times in various ways where I've seen people um, in workshops I've seen a white person um, because the word crack like the like a sound crack was in a um, poem and someone decided that seeing the word crack made them think of a whip which then made them think of slavery and unknowingly enslaved people within someone's poem and the writer of the poem never told you these people were enslaved you can do so much with your assumptions and your guilt and your feeling when really what you need to do is listen or you need to write and you need to take a step back do i know this person do i know what they're doing or am i just throwing feelings historical guilt onto something that doesn't involve me um, and I think that 
publishing has gotten really interested in telling people's stories and representation. I think representation is a horrible send-off. I never... I mean, I might be weird in this, and I don't think that it's bad to see oneself reflected in a book, but um, I just read books. And when I read kids' books, I was like, if I didn't like the lead person, I'm like, I'm going to switch it out for someone that looks a little different. It's my imagination, you know? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's no harm in doing that. I think it's good that writers are, like, marginalized writers are getting opportunities, but, like, a lot of the time you kind of have to sell your pain to get those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And you have to write about something that white people want to sell, and white people are very interested in selling other people. They always yeah. have been. And you might get roped into that. It's really scary. And I think that, you know, like, that's what capital is. It, it's in the business of selling everything, 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 everything. You have to be very thoughtful about what you are willing to sell. This book is for sale. <laughs> you bought this book, you know? Well, I didn't. Well, they, yeah, yeah, they, they I'm like, they sent you the review copy. That's <laughs> yeah. fine. Some people bought this book. And they should, but also, like, I made very conscious decisions about, like, this mm -hmm. is for sale. Yeah. What won't I say for sale? Mm -hmm. who, I, who will I not put in here because it's for sale? Yeah. The poet Robin Cost Lewis was on Commonplace a while back, and every time she thinks about publication, she stops and asks myself, do I want this because it will be good for me in my life? Mm -hmm. Or do I want this because I have something that needs to be heard. Mm -hmm. And she takes a moment and like weighs her desire to be published against the thousands of trees that will be cut down in order to publish her book. Yeah. Which I've never heard anyone else talk about it in those terms, but really like makes you think like, do I really want to be published. Yeah. And what does publishing look like? And I think there's also a relationship of like a lot of people publish because again, they're working through some emotions. Either they've lost someone close to them. They're dealing with like, um, you know, large scale violence. They're dealing with like, a, you know, dilapidated society and changing environment. That's all really real. That's all grief. I get it. But we don't have any good um, rituals for grief in this country. Mm -hmm. My friend was just talking to me about this last night, that a lot of the West doesn't understand grief. And I haven't lost a lot of people in my life, so I'm a little ignorant to grief myself. But sometimes our idea of honoring someone or honoring a situation is by putting them in the canon, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's always the best thing to do. I think there's a lot of other ways to honor people that doesn't like in death or in, you know, whatever, um, rope them into this larger endeavor that gets you paid. I think sometimes, though, some people do want that. And I also think that that's fine. You know, I think that there are some people that would love to be like in, I don't know, like some people, if your father died, I think if my dad died, and I wrote a book or a movie or something about him, and he'd be into that. Just because of who he is as a person, because I know him. He'd be, like, sick. Um, but not everyone's like that, and you really have to think about, like, 
what the people around you want. In and a, he's not a stranger. He's not a stranger. Exactly. I'm, I'm not going to write something and be like, Andre loved this thing. And I'm just guessing like, mm-hmm. oh, I know what he likes. <laughs> I know who he is. Very important. Um, so you mentioned, I mean, we've been talking about your book mm-hmm. and the sort of market mm-hmm. of literature, which is, sometimes feels like such a demeaning way of talking about it. But I am also really interested in talking about it because poetry is so often like tacitly talked about as like a gift economy when functionally it is not. There is money involved. Mm -hmm. It is part of capitalism Mm -hmm. at this point. Not talking about those things is, is just like participating in it in like a really deceitful way. So I guess my question is so much of this book is a very like, like there's a tension between uh, looking inward and looking outward. Mm. But I think a lot of it is really about looking inward and looking Mm. to the past, looking to the future, not looking to the present, not looking to, um, you're in conversation with like, time Mm -hmm. in a way that is it it doesn't seem like your book is as interested in having or in being in conversation with the dominant like modes of Mm -hmm. writing of contemporary poetry I guess my question is like how how do how did the experience of your own work change when you went from being in conversation with like the ancient time, being in conversation with the future, being in conversation with like these symbols and like, like the sort of internal um, looking inward to then shifting into, all right, I have to go do readings now. I have Mm. to sell this book. Mm. I have to, make this book marketable in order to work for myself and survive Mm -hmm. in the capitalist hellscape we live in. How did, how did your perception of your own work change in that process? That's a great question. I don't know if it changed so much as I was really, there's things I won't do. I didn't go on a book tour and it's not that I would never go on a book tour, but I did the math and that doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, people think that when you publish a book, the next thing you do is you go on tour and you go to the little bookstores and everyone's posting pictures of you. That's not, me and my bank account are not set up that way. So I'm not going to do a book tour. And that's fine. Wherever I find myself, I can find a way to read a book. That's fine. Um, reading aloud, I've only, this week was the first time I've ever read aloud to like an audience, like to multiple people, this book. And I was a little nervous about it, obviously. And I texted my sister, um, and my sister replied to me and was like, you're going to do great. You have a great reading voice. People are going to love it. And that was kind of it. I was like, she's right. (laughs) She's known me a long time. She's right. I feel no type of way about selling it. (laughs) I've been, it's, it's technically 1895. That's how much it costs. I've been selling it for $20 while I'm here. 
I'm going to get my little change about it. You know, like I took time. It's three years of my life that I wrote. I don't feel weird selling it because I think that I, I stand behind what I wrote. And if I didn't, if I had written the book to sell, um, like to get as much money out of it as I possibly could to make it as like, um, inviting as possible, then maybe I would feel weird about selling it. But I think now I'm just like, there's things I need. My air conditioning bill was ridiculously high this past summer. You know, like there's things I have to pay. So I, I think I'm getting in my, as I get older, I'm 31 now. Um, I just am getting a little bit better at being like, these are the facts of my life. Mm-hmm. And this is what I have. And I worked all those jobs and I made money and now I have this and I can make money. And this feels true. This feels true. This is artisanal. <laughs> you know, you go to your cheesemonger who's got his artisanal cheeses. I got my poetry book. You're going to pay for the cheese. You're going to pay for the book. That's what it feels like where it's better to me than being like, I do a thing that doesn't do anything or matter to me. It doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make you feel good. Um, it affect. I mean, it still maybe generates good in the world, but it was really painful to me to work and sit at a desk for eight hours a day and not be writing poetry. That was off bad. I was like, I can't do that. Um, but I think I wrote enough also about my tension of like money and payment and capitalism mm-hmm. that I, I, I felt, I feel okay in it. I read this one poem the other night. I have never read it out loud. It works so much better reading aloud than it does on paper, and it's tabloid-esque. Um, it's Arabesque tabloid-esque, and it's kind of like an ad in the middle of the book for the book. Do you want to read it now? Yeah, I, when I, I don't know. It's such a weird, there it is. Um, Arabesque tabloid-esque. Across the country, from the most quotidian racist to the ethnically vibrant social circles of many well-to-do glamour activists and peddlers of branded ego propaganda, a emptiness smarts. They spend many hours twisting their words under the guise of spellwork and freedom, but their mouths are nothing more than deep pockets, a source in Detroit confessed. When we first stopped her for comment, she frowned her eyes narrowing into inquisitive slits. She had the frazzled look of someone who is lost, though, upon closer inspection, she seemed to possess the simmering awareness of a person trailing their way back to work via the usual commute. Upon telling her of our publication, she was lifted with a sudden quickness of personality. Let's be clear about it, she continued. I believe in blood, I believe there are people here who were meant to be slaughtered, not just the rich, but the vapidly baseless influential hiding behind their clout padded walls. Oh, responded our reporter, caught off guard. It was the start of their week and they had slept a bit too deeply the night prior, which gave them a, gave the day a sensation of unshakable dreaminess. Do you have any optimism managed our reporter? The woman thought seriously for a moment turning her gaze upward to the faint and distant sliver of a daytime moon. I know one way or another this evil will indefinitely end, and a few of us will have ruled our way out of it clean. At that moment, the train arrived. 
She checked the time, turning abruptly before vanishing back into the crowd. I found her comments to be particularly enjoyable, read the note left on my desk, our dear reporter's handwriting. You must admit she is cruel and concise, good stuff for selling papers, as you generous reader must know, having paid for your own copy here. Like I'm literally contending with the fact like you bought this <laughs> and you might not like this. And like, you know, like, and I'm saying what I believe, like I'm playing with the narrator a lot in the book. There's like breaks of like narration that happen where, yeah, like I'm in the book <laughs> and I feel that way and I didn't lie about it. And so, yeah. Cruel and concise, good stuff for selling papers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, are you the narrator in the book? Sometimes? Like to an extent, yeah. I think, I think mostly, yeah. But it's like, it's like a mirror image of me. It's like not Gabrielle, because you don't mm -hmm. know me. You know, I don't yeah. want people to read the book and be like, "Oh my god, I know you." I'm like, no, you don't, babe. <laughs> um, but I will say that you saw a character of me. You know, like you saw a. Someone that I pull out every now and then in public space for mm -hmm. people to witness, um, which everyone has that. Um, so you know her. And I think that she's not... She has a different function, but I don't think that most of our um, beliefs deviate very much mm -hmm. from one to the other. Um, it also, I don't know why I'm saying this, but it made me think about, like, have you ever thought about, like, how many pictures you're in the background of that like aren't like someone didn't take of you like you know like say you're at a bar and someone's taking a picture of friends and like you're in the background like with a little fry hunched over like mm -hmm. that's who is the narrator of the book like that weird fractal like everywhere gabrielle that's in the background of pictures and isn't like you know you see on instagram and stuff like it's not me mm -hmm. <laughs> and i i think also because i know that i feel okay because I didn't give myself away. I gave, like, the public... Gab public Gabrielle wants to do public Gabrielle things. Mm -hmm. And so she's in the book talking to people. I like to be in my room. Yeah. Writing. Writing. Or Staring reading. at the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, like, there's things, like... She witnesses what I do. So she'll talk about it, but... Don't get too familiar. What, um... What were you reading when you wrote this book? I know that's a huge question. It is, because I'm like, what was I reading? Um, or what are you reading now? Right now I'm reading Kibogo by Scholastic, uh, ooh, last name, Musongo? That might not be right. Um, but I've also been reading a lot of Amina Kane. I love Amina Kane, and I love Clarice, uh, not Clarice, sorry. I do love Clarice uh, Spector, but I also love Claire Louise Bennett. Um, I found out about Claire Louise Bennett's writing through Amina Keynes, and I read their book, Pond. Oh my god, I loved that book. I loved that book so very much. Um, what else was I reading? I really like Metasama. I was reading Metasama's book and looking at some YouTube videos of Metasama reading. What a great reader. Um, what a great poet. What else? What else? I love Ed Roberson. Huge fan of Ed Roberson. Um, Ed Roberson has one poem called, ooh, 
It's called Q or the Night Traffic Symbols. I think that's what it, the title is. I love that poem. I found that poem probably in 2019, I think right before the pandemic. And this book, I was unknowingly writing this book in 2019, maybe even 2018, um, and knowingly writing it sometime in either 2020 or 2021. But that poem by Ed Robeson I found, and I was like, this is language that I understand like innately. Um, Edgar Garcia, his book, Boundary Loot, his chat book, I think Boundary Loot is amazing. If anyone listening knows Edgar Garcia, tell him to talk to me. Um, <laughs> tell him to hit me up because I love that book. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Oh, so I found it. I found a PDF. Of, I used to read it at my desk at work when I would be pretending to I work. I love doing that. I love to pretend to work. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite thing to do at work. Pretend to work. Same. Mm-hmm. What else was I reading? Was I reading any fiction really? Mm, not really. I think, like I said, I haven't been reading fiction in a long, long time. I was reading some Suzanne Cessier. Um, I really like Suzanne Cessier. Her work, The Great Camouflage, like that essay is great, and the... I think it's called The Great Camouflage Writings of Descent, which is a little, like, anthology collection that um, was published of her work. It's a pretty slim read, but it's super, super rich. Um, Beverly Buchanan. I didn't read the book, but I got familiar with Beverly Buchanan's artwork. I get really like art. Mm-hmm. I think that sculpture makes a lot of sense for me. I think it's super relational to poetry, at least how I understand poetry. Because, again, it's visual. Um so different artists I would get into Beverly Buchanan, Whitfield, uh, Lovell, um, the cover image of my book. I was about to ask, can you talk about the cover? Yeah, this is, um, Augusta Savage and she, it's an image of her looking up at her work called Satyr and it's a little boy as a Satyr and he's got little hooked feet and there's two bunnies, one bunnies at his uh, foot, like looking up, smelling him, and he's holding the other one. And the gaze between Augusta Savage and her sculpture, I thought was beautiful. I thought it was amazing. And I found this on Tumblr. I still use Tumblr. <laughs> and I think I found this on Tumblr, and I was like, I knew, but I had this image before I ever knew I was going to be able to write a book. This is the cover of my book. Like, I had this image before I had anything else, before I had a lot of the poems. Um, How did you know it was a book? Like you, you mentioned in 2019-ish. I didn't know. They asked me, they said I could write a book. I submitted to, the song Kate have a, had an open reading period in, I think it was 2020. And I'm really bad at submitting things. Like the date will pass and I'm like, well, next year, I guess. Me too. And I somehow got it together enough and I sent them what I believe to be a harebrained manuscript because <laughs> it kind of was. And they were into it. And I was so shocked. Like, I don't get even accepted to, like, publish work in poetry journals. (laughs) Like, that has only happened ever since more or less I had a book. Like, I think my first, like, real poetry journal thing, like, is dated, like, 2020. Because no one was publishing my shit before that. Like, it wasn't happening. So I then was like, damn, I have to write a book. Like, and I was really insecure. I, Ben and Alan, amazing people, um, really were kind and I would sometimes be like I'm really insecure about how this looks I don't know what's going on da, da, da. and 
they'd be like, I'd send them some crazy manuscript and they're like, looks good. Keep going. I'm just like, I want like feedback. But Did I'm they give they... you feedback when you asked for it? I didn't ask for a lot because I okay. was just like, I guess I have to believe you that it's good and I should keep okay. writing. Um, the one time I did ask for feedback, yeah, I got feedback and it was, um, I think this came specifically from Ben. Because um, Ben kind of, the way Ben says it, Ben is like likes to do the ordering of things, like how the, the full spectrum of the book looks and Alan's more like in the weeds. Um, so they make a really good team. But Ben was like, Murmurs was a long poem before. Murmurs was like, an episodic long poem that tr- looked like a traditional poem. It wasn't broken up. Yeah. Um, and it was going to just come in the middle of the book. And Ben was like, what if this just, what if murmurs was its own section? Like what if the book starts mm-hmm. with murmurs? I did not think about that myself. I didn't consider that. Um, but I, I'm really glad because I understand. I don't, I don't think murmurs would be able to work amongst everything. It's, it would interrupt or it wouldn't be able to get its job done in the way that it needs to. It needs that space. It needs that space. And even reading it aloud yesterday for the first time to people, I was like, ah, it, it's doing what I need it to do. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Mate, writing a book is hard. Yeah. It shit don't make no sense. Because you doubt, I mean, if you're like me, you doubt yourself mm-hmm. the whole time. Because, like, at the end of the day, like, I spent three years writing this more or less. Like... My relationship to these poems is way different than someone reading it. Like, I was in the weeds with this, you know? Like, I know every decision that was made to write these poems, and that's, that, I don't have the distance that a reader would have. And when you don't have that distance, you get really overwhelmed with, like, just what you're doing. Does it make sense? Does this poem need to go after this poem? Like, is this even a good poem? I've looked at it 97 times. I can't read this anymore. I did it somehow. I don't know. You did it, Gab. Do you want to read one more poem? Yeah. Okay. I'm excited Um, to see what it is. Let me see. I'm just going to let you choose between these two because I love both of these poems. And I think both of them are like a great, like... That, you know, not that we have to end, mm-hmm. but practice for my birthday or page from the diary of the eldest. Oh, wow. I think. Which one are you leaning toward? I think I'm leaning toward page from the diary of the eldest. I'll read that because I didn't read that um, at all this week. Page from the diary of the eldest. I've been told that old age will find me, though under what circumstances I'm unsure. Prophecy demands brevity. Clarity belittles the source. Laundromat psychics stutter around it. They've told me all I was meant to know. I've stopped grooming my eyebrows and see in the mirror the face of an old woman. She tells me that youth is fleeting and I should eat the fruit of it whole. Devoured, it will ferment and for the rest of our lives we will drink what we need to get by each of us glowing in the power of the elixir, radiating from the inside out. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, that was that was a good one. Um, I love. 
I love that it's sort of like a sacrifice, you know, mm. like that the the one person becomes a source for other people, which is kind of what you were talking about with like people should bring be bringing baskets of food to your door. Like mm-hmm. the the poet is the source mm-hmm. that um, feeds the community. Yeah, the poet is the door to the source. Yeah. I'll die. There'll still be the source. This has been episode 112 of Commonplace with Gabrielle Octavia Rucker. I'm your host, Valentin Kennedy. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Zucker, Langa Chinyoka, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to The Song Cave, Kelsey Street Press, and the University of Pittsburgh Press for the books they publish and for sharing them so generously with our listeners. Thank you to all of our Commonplace patrons, to everyone who sends us messages of support and encouragement, and to you, listener. <laughs>